are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited. We have Dr. Amy De La Garza back, and she is here to discuss some complementary and integrative therapies for substance use disorder. I am just going to turn it over to Amy to just give us a brief bio, and then we're just going to jump in. All right, Amy, take it away. Thanks for having me back again, you guys. I'm glad to be with you tonight. My name is Amy De La Garza. I'm a family practice trained physician. I just finished a fellowship in addiction medicine at the University of Utah and a certified practitioner by the Institute for Functional Medicine. So I practice functional and lifestyle medicine in my practice. And I've actually just transitioned from a private practice here in Salt Lake to a new company called NovaMind, where I'll be working to set up some integrated behavioral health and substance use disorder programming. So I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Amy. We're, we're excited. And it was so great to talk to you round one about these therapies that can benefit patients with substance use disorder, because I think a lot of times our patients get left in the dark medically and research-wise, and also in the world of complementary and integrative medicine, when they deserve to have every tool accessible to them, right? Anything that can be helpful. And what I love about your approach is it's always evidence-based. You're not just pulling things out of your hat. And um, I think it's really useful for patients and patients are interested in these therapies. And when all else fails, which is sometimes not even a lot, right? We don't always have a lot to offer people. Then I think it's wonderful to have these tools. So thanks for coming back. You're our first guest to appear twice. So woohoo! <laughs> guest, guest of honor. And you deserve it. So I think last time we talked, and if people want to refer back to the other episode, if you haven't listened to it, we discussed a lot. Well, Amy talked about nutrition and movement and sleep as kind of three of the fundamental principles guiding health and wellness in people with addiction. And you talked about magnesium and melatonin as being very helpful supplements for these folks. And we wanted to talk more about other supplements that and micronutrients that are particularly helpful for our folks, and also some botanicals that might be useful amino acids, and then other therapies that are maybe outside the realm of traditional talk therapy, like CBT and DBT, like mindfulness based therapy. And um, I can jump in and talk a little bit about Qigong and some of these other mind body things that we learn about in integrative medicine if we have time. But do you want to, does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Great. Okay. Oh, don't let us forget to talk about auricular acupuncture. <laughs> we'll definitely talk <laughs> lest about that. We, lest we not forget. Okay. So yeah, Amy, let's go. Talk, talk to us about what else is on the table for our patients with substance use disorder outside of the already accepted treatment options that we always discuss, including medications for, for, treat, for addiction and harm reduction methods. What else in addition? I think there's a couple of things that we could talk about. I'll talk about two supplements, one for stimulant use disorder, one for alcohol use disorder. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of other sort of more general nutritional supplements um, that do have some pretty good evidence for use in patients with behavioral health disorders 
of course, but specifically a couple of samples of supplements that have been shown to be helpful in in uh, substance use disorder treatment. So the first one I'll mention is N-acetylcysteine or NAC. And um, most of you are probably familiar with this as the treatment for acetaminophen overdose. We use this for patients who have overdosed on Tylenol um, to help reduce oxidative damage um, to the liver and liver failure. But interestingly, because of its antioxidant properties and because it's known to reduce glutamate in certain areas of the brain where excess glutamate may potentiate compulsive behaviors and substance use, it, it has been studied a little bit in the substance use area. And of course, the data isn't great, but the great thing about N-acetylcysteine is it's basically benign. It really has no side effects other than maybe some GI distress. Um, so you titrate it up slowly, which we'll talk about in a second. It's very cheap and it's over the counter. So when we're talking about sort of utilizing all the tools in our toolbox, I really like this one. So uh, just a little bit of the evidence, a couple of the studies um, in stimulant use disorders, methamphetamine and cocaine in patients who are currently abstinent from stimulants, N-acetylcysteine has been shown to reduce cravings. So there's no evidence that people are that are currently using methamphetamine or cocaine will reduce their use by taking N-acetylcysteine. But for people who are in treatment, they're treatment seeking, or they're already abstinent, um, but still experiencing cravings, this can be really useful. So and that's been demonstrated in two small randomized control trials, one for methamphetamine, amphetamines and one for cocaine. There's a new trial. It's called the NICE trial. This is a study out of Australia. It's an Australian study and it's anticipated to be published this year. Actually, they randomized 180 um, patients with methamphetamine use active use of methamphetamine and randomize them to N-acetylcysteine or placebo. And they're going to be looking at urine drug screens and self-reported methamphetamine use. So it'll be interesting to see what that data shows. It's published hopefully early, uh, later on this year. So, and this year's almost over, but I did look up this trial the other day, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and it's still not published. So, but this data is forthcoming. So that will be interesting. Cannabis use disorder may improve abstinence specifically in the adolescent population when it's combined with contingency management strategies. So that's the, that's the study with the best evidence for use of N-acetylcysteine in cannabis use disorder. And we think it reduces compulsive compulsion and craving in adolescents. It has been studied in adults. The data isn't quite as impressive. Like I said, um, N-acetylcysteine is cheap. You can Patients can buy it over the counter. It can be cheaply purchased by treatment programs that are on a tight budget, and it has relatively few side effects. So what's the dose for N-acetylcysteine? Anywhere between 2,400 and 3,600 milligrams a day have been used in these different studies. I don't think you could really overdose someone on N-acetylcysteine, but I think the key here is to um, slowly titrate the dose. So usually what I do is I have them take 600 milligrams in the morning, 600 milligrams at night, maybe for a few days, make sure they don't have any nausea or diarrhea, and then titrate up to the 24 to 36. So that's how I use N-acetylcysteine. I would say 
it's okay <laughs> in my experience. Um, for some people, it seems to be really helpful. I've used it in a number of patients with cannabis use disorder and it does seem to reduce cravings a bit. I haven't myself used it in adolescents because I don't treat them, but I think it's certainly something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, Amy, I agree with everything you said. I've used it a lot with my stimulant folks. I think just because it's a matter of volume, I have we have so many stimulant using people and I, it just seems to be worth a try. And I agree, I haven't seen a astounding results. But I think that's because you're treating folks once they have already stopped using and the effect is gradual and mild. And the whole target organ, right, are these the target organelles or whatever, these little glutaminergic neurons that are supposed to help regulate their function takes time and maybe it just expedites healing. I've definitely had one or two stimulant patients think that it's been helpful for cravings. And so they've continued to take it, maybe even more than one or two. And this is anecdotal, but I've definitely had more cannabis users think that it's helpful. And I recommend it to adolescents because it's the, the risk benefit ratio is really in favor of trying it. And I think it's quite helpful. And I had one patient who actually, let's see, how old was she? 65-year-old lady whose drug of choice was cannabis, very heavy cannabis user, and really struggling with cravings for cannabis and struggling to stay sober. And N-acetylcysteine seemed to help her just enough that she could kind of engage in IOP and finish treatment. And when she stopped using it, I don't know if it was coincidental, but she stopped using it. It just ran out. She didn't go to the drugstore or buy some more. She returned to use a few weeks later. Now, I don't, I'm not blaming the N-acetylcysteine absence, but in retrospect, she's like, I think it was actually helping me more than I gave it credit for. Oh, so. that's awesome. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, in the functional medicine world, people use N-acetylcysteine for just about everything because of its antioxidant properties. And it's really interesting because I didn't really understand exactly why or how it would really be beneficial. But, you know, we were talking in one of my last functional medicine modules about neurologic disease. You know, if we think about substance use disorder as a neurologic disease, which of course it is, um, a lot of progressive neurological disease we think has to do with poor mitochondrial function, neuronal mitochondrial function. And and thinking about reducing oxidative stress in neurons by increasing the ability of the ATP transport chain to work and create energy in the brain, it really, energy in the brain stimulates healing and it stimulates microglial activity, which, you know, the microglia clean up all the trash in the brain. So you can just imagine that, yeah, maybe over time, this is contributing to neuronal healing and improvement of neuronal plasticity and sort of learning these new behavioral pathways. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's, it's great. The other thing that I was just going to add about N-acetylcysteine is that there are a few studies suggesting that it's good for OCD and trichotillomania. And so you can try it in those patients who present with a dual presentation, like very high anxiety, kind of obsessive compulsive trait and methamphetamine. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you could maybe target it for both. I know there are several psychiatrists here at the academic institution here in town who use it, especially those actually who are more integrative trained. I know there's a couple of folks who well, use it. I think it's it. interesting because yeah, you talk about that compulsive behavior. So I think that makes sense. 
right? That it would make it would possibly have some benefit with those other disorders, right? Because glutamine dysregulation typically equals um, impulsivity and compulsive behavior problems. Great. Okay, so N-acetylcysteine. Bottom line is it's cheap. It's over the counter. It's likely not going to be harmful. In fact, it'll probably be beneficial in other ways. It's a good antioxidant. Start with 600 milligrams BID titrate to 1200 milligrams BID. Better to be administered when patients are not currently using their drug and tell them to continue on it for several weeks before they expect to see the the, the effect. Does that sum it up? Yes. Okay, perfect. N-acetylcysteine. Done. Check. Check. What's next? Do you want to talk about kutsu? Let's talk a little bit about kutsu. And Paula, you definitely have more. I learned about kutsu from you um, and you definitely have more experience in this area than I do. So feel free to jump in anytime or if you just want to talk about it. But oh, no, kutsu is a, a Chinese herb. It's actually, it's a anti-inflammatory compound found in, in legumes. And so again, we're talking about isoflavones, which are anti-inflammatory compounds. Anti-inflammatory can also equal antioxidant. So we're talking about helping heal the brain here, I think. There are lots of proposed mechanisms in addition to anti-inflammatory effects of kutsu, which I won't go into, but it does seem to help specifically in patients with alcohol use disorder. And there are a couple of really interesting studies by Lucas et al. He's done two of big studies with kutsu, looking at kutsu in patients that are heavy drinkers. So people that are drinking significant amounts of alcohol multiple times per week. And in the first study, he looked at they looked at 1,000 milligrams TID of kutsu in, quote, heavy drinkers. And they had them use kutsu for seven days and they looked at the number of beers that they consumed in sitting. So they actually set up this lab where people would come and sit in a chair and they had this special table that was actually able to measure how much beer they were drinking over a certain amount of time like right down to the sip number of sips of beer that it took them to drink one can of beer. And they looked at how much they drank before the seven days of kutsu and then looked at how much they drank after the seven days kutsu. And there was a significant reduction in the number of beers consumed um, between those two sitting periods. And they also noticed that people drank the beer slower. So whatever that means, what is it doing? Like, I don't really understand that totally, but it must have something to do with kind of that positive feedback that we get using alcohol and other substances, slowing down sort of that euphoric effect and decreasing the drive to sort of continue the use. So that's a really interesting study that was published in 2005. If you're interested, I would just read it because it's like really, it's almost funny. Like I was laughing as I read it. I was like, this is unbelievable that people thought about this. And then in 2013, a second study was published by the same group. This was a little bit different. They were looking at number of consecutive abstinent days after four weeks of kutsu. So a thousand milligrams TID for four weeks, randomized control. This was not a randomized control trial. I'm sorry. This was just looking at consumption before the four weeks and and consumption after the four weeks. And there was a significant reduction in the number of consecutive abstinent days. So a little bit of a different study, but both showing positive effect in reducing number of drinks on drinking days and number of consecutive abstinent days. And then another study in 2015, looking at significant reduction beers consumed in one setting, 90 minutes after a single two gram dose, kutsu. This was all in males, just to note that. But this is interesting when we think about 
the prevalence and the significant negative side effects and negative implications of binge drinking, especially when we're thinking about young male binge drinkers, kutsu may significantly reduce the number of drinks that they consume in a, in a setting. And so for especially for our young kids, I think this is a really important thing to think about. And I've only used kutsu a couple of times. I've had one patient have a positive experience in reducing number of drinks in a sitting and another patient that didn't really think it helped much at all. So my experience is limited in my new role. I think I'm going to be bringing kutsu into my practice on a very regular basis for patients with alcohol use disorder. Yeah, it's so interesting. I find that I've recommended it quite a lot. I especially recommend it when I know patients are interested in complementary methods to help them with alcohol cravings in addition to things like naltrexone and acamprosate, or for some reason they don't want to try medications like that. I've introduced kudzu to them. And I mean, obviously they can just go buy it at Sprouts or Whole Foods or anything like something like that. And I've heard back that they, they think it's helpful. There's also some, and I'm trying to find, I was trying to find the studies. There's some studies showing that it may help with mild withdrawal, that it can reduce withdrawal symptoms. And of course you would never want to recommend that in lieu of medically managed withdrawal for people who have severe withdrawal. The fact that it, the, the active chemical that seems to help the brain <clears throat> with alcohol consumption and cravings, what is it, puripin? Pu- no, puririn. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. That isoflavin is the compound that has a positive effect on the nervous system, may also not only help with cravings, but help with some of the kind of central nervous system, hyper alert and overdrive or autonomic overdrive effects of drinking. Yeah, I mean, it, the studies show that it can reduce the amount of alcohol you drink in one setting. It may help with hangovers and withdrawal, and it may even promote, may help you with, with, with staying sober. We just don't know. There's been a few studies, like Amy said. So it's worth looking into. I think the key is to make sure you're getting a good a good sure. source of it. Not all sources of herbs are equal. So you want to get a source of kudzu root that is manufactured and, and stamped in the United States. I think herbs um, directly imported from China, there's been some risk associated with them in terms of contaminants. So I would just look for the safe national, look for the national safety seal and uh, go with a known brand that you feel like you trust is standardized and they have good extracts without a lot of fillers. Well, and I think you bring up a, a good point. For some reason, alcohol use disorders, we seem to get the most refusals on medications, right? And patients sometimes aren't always open to some of these naltrexone, acamprosate, and even if a patient is refusing all of those medications, this can be something that you can maybe considering. It's really interesting that patients will be open to sometimes these complementary medications and they won't accept these others, and maybe this could be helpful for them. So it's something to just keep in your back pocket. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and important point that you make, Darlene, and Paula and I have had this conversation before that even though people have this misconception of people that use substances, oh, they really don't care what they put in their body. You know, why are they being so resistant to taking a medication? I mean, they're not using substances to do anything other than to self sort of right. to medicate anxiety or trauma or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the reason people are using substances. And a lot of times these individuals are exquisitely more sensitive to medications interventions than 
than we would really expect given the amount of exposure that their bodies have had to other substances. And so I think it, it is interesting to note that there is, they're, they're very sensitive and, and it can be hard to, to get them to come to the side of medication management, but we can meet them where they are by letting them maybe try some of these complementary medications and gain some therapeutic alliance with them. As time goes on, they may begin to trust us and, and be more open to trying some of our more evidence-based medications and approaches. So yeah, I like that you, I like that you bring that up, Darlene. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important thing to remember. Okay. Vitamin D is my favorite supplement, I think. So let's talk about, there's a lot of evidence um, for the use of vitamin D in patients with behavioral health diagnoses. So there's evidence that it helps with depression, anxiety, bipolar, even schizophrenia. For this particular discussion, I wanted to mention one study that's pretty hot off the press. It was just published this year, looking at vitamin D deficiency and opioid use. Really interesting study, and it's sort of a two-part study. So the first part um, was a retrospective analysis a chart review. And what they did is they reviewed patients that had either insufficient or deficient vitamin D, insufficient defined as 12 to 20 nanograms per milliliter, deficient less than 12 nanograms per milliliter, were more likely to use opioids. And in addition to that, patients with opioid use disorder, diagnosed opioid use disorder, were more likely to be deficient or insufficient than those without opioid use disorder. And that was statistically significant. So that was the first part of the study. So hmm, like, what is that all about? And then the second part of the study, I would love to know how they do this, but I, I wouldn't even think of mice as being vitamin D deficient or not, but they got together a group of vitamin D deficient mice and they looked at their behavior in relationship to morphine administration and withdrawal. And mice who were vitamin D deficient had increased morphine seeking behavior than those that were vitamin D sufficient. And they exhibited withdrawal behaviors more significantly than normal mice. Totally. Like I would love to have seen that. Then when they restored the vitamin D to the mice, this normalized their behavior in line with mice that um, were were always that were vitamin D sufficient. This really suggests a potential role for vitamin D in patients with opioid use disorder and underlies the importance um, of testing people for vitamin D deficiency. And there are some insurances that still won't cover vitamin D levels, which is just mind-boggling to me. If you can test vitamin D in your patients, I think that's always a good idea. What is a normal vitamin D level? So that's somewhat controversial in the literature. I go with sort of what the vitamin D council and the endocrine society say. So if patients are less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, they are deficient as defined by the vitamin D council, and they are insufficient when they're less than 20 nanograms per milliliter um, defined by the endocrine society. So less than 20, bad. What is optimal? I say anywhere between 80 and 100. If patients are on the lower end of the normal lab core request value, which is somewhere between 40 and 100, it's quite a large span by lab core. I try to get people up onto the 100 
side of things, somewhere between 80 and 100. Optimal levels, um, as recommended by the Vitamin D Council, 40 to 80. Optimal from the Endocrine Society, 30 to 50. There's not any good evidence of vitamin D overuse or vitamin D poisoning. And so if I can get people up onto the higher end of the lab for normal value, closer to 80 to 100, that's really what I shoot for. I do have people who really won't use anything other than just the very basic supplements. And if I get people well repleted with vitamin D and give them a good B complex and get them eating better and sleeping better, people who are depressed, people who are anxious, they will report feeling better. So without any medications or anything else. So I think there is a role for vitamin D for sure. Um, what do I use to replete vitamin D? I used to use daily 5,000 IU supplementation, but I never was really getting great levels. And I was like, why is this happening? And I had a discussion with rep, which I hate to say my orthomolecular supplement rep. And he started talking to me about their new um, product. It's a 50,000 unit um, colocalciferol, so vitamin D3, 50,000 unit once a week supplementation. And that he had been talking to a lot of practitioners who had been seeing better levels come back. So this is anecdotal. I started using this once a week high dose supplementation, not the one you get from the pharmacy. That's D2 and it's probably not as bioavailable, but this D3 formulation. And I have seen my levels come back better than they've ever been. And I've been checking levels for probably, I've been checking levels for probably five years now and repleting using three to 5,000 daily. And I have not gotten any better levels than I have in the last six to eight months using this repletion method. How so soon how after you start them on their vitamin D, Amy, are you checking their levels again? Three months. And there's like, I don't know what the evidence is for that, to be completely honest with you. I, I have no, but I check them about three months later. I feel like it takes them six weeks to order it from the supplement company and two additional weeks to get it out of the box and put it on the counter. And then, you know, maybe they take it for a few weeks before I check. So I've been checking out about three months. Yeah, that's so interesting. Interesting study and a kind of a kind of a controversial aspect of medicine right now. Like vitamin D has gone in and out of favor for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a hot topic on multiple yeah. podcasts. But I really agree with you clinically. I've, I've seen people perk right up from everything from myalgias and oppressive symptoms. They seem to improve when you replete vitamin D. And I think that's, I wonder if that's why the mice and people see opioids when their levels are so critically low because they just feel so terrible. <laughs> they just want to feel feel better. They just want to feel better. Yeah. And I mean, like we always, you know, like I always say, when we have these discussions, like this is not a treatment for depression. It's not a treatment for anxiety. It's not a treatment for opioid use disorder, but it's certainly something worthwhile to put in your toolbox. I mean, vitamin D is also critical for healthy gut. So it helps maintain the turnover of healthy cells that line the GI tract, um, which is critically important for absorption and microbiome health and gut, reducing gut hyperpermeability, which we talked a lot about last time. It also has anti-inflammatory properties and it has neuronal support properties. So it's just kind of like, why not? Right. And I just recommend when people are, when I find that people have low vitamin D, I just tell them they're going to have to take vitamin D kind of indefinitely, unless they move to a very sunny climate or find some dietary source that they really are going to target. But it's very difficult to 
get dietary vitamin D in any kind of a meaningful way. And unless you get a lot of sun exposure or regular sun exposure in more of a tropical latitude, it's just very, very common for people that who live in northern latitudes to have vitamin D deficiency. And those of us who work all day inside. So it's almost global, like especially where we live in Utah, most people that I'm checking have low vitamin D levels. I find it I, I'm like surprised if someone has a normal level, even if they're taking a daily vitamin D. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's amazing. You have normal vitamin D. Like I, it just doesn't seem to happen all right. that often. Okay. What's next, Amy? This is, this is great. Great information. Fish oil. I don't need, we don't need to talk about it too much, but I do think that fish oil is really important. There's not a lot of evidence for fish oil and substance use that I know of. Um, it's been a little while since I looked at that data specifically, but we know that fish oil is really helpful specifically for behavioral health diagnoses, including schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, and depression probably has some of the best data in depression. And there's some very a small amount of evidence that it may help reduce anxiety symptoms, specifically in patients with substance use disorder. So a small study looking at benefits of fish oil supplementation in patients with substance use, and maybe it seems to help anxiety, which why not? But again, fish oil is really important for neuronal membrane health, and it's important for healthy gut lining. It has very significant anti-inflammatory properties. Fish oil is sort of a staple for, for my practice. And I replace people with about two grams per day. I love it. I agree. And it has so many other benefits too for people aside from their mental health that um, again, if, they're, if you're going to choose a high yield supplement, I would say omega-3 fatty acids are the way to go. And if you have a vegetarian or vegan patient, then you can recommend algae oil. So omega-3s from algae oil, or even more more preferably is recommend patients eat omega-3 high foods such as ground flaxseed, walnuts, and fatty fish, the smash fish, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, and herring. Uh, they will give them a, a sardines and herring, excuse me. They will give them ample amounts of omega-3s as well. Yes. Dietary sources are always the best. Most people don't get a lot of dietary sources of omega-3s, unfortunately, given our standard American diet and over-reliance on omega-6s. So yeah, I think it's great to have people try some fish oil. And thanks for mentioning the um, algae supplements for patients that are plant-based or don't want to use fish oil for one reason or another. Thanks for mentioning Sure. That. So what else? Are there any other supplements or micronutrients, botanicals that you recommend for patients? Or is that cover? I mean, we've covered quite a few. Okay. That I love it. Much, so what else? What it. else in terms yeah. of, I mean, obviously yeah. there are a lot of therapies that are offered to patients with substance use disorder and our therapy friends, you know, those who have advanced degrees in therapy, utilize so many skills. And But what else as medical providers or practitioners or, or therapists, behavioral health specialists, what else can we offer that would be outside of the realm of traditional kind of talk or cognitive or di dialectical behavioral therapies. Well, tell me about the auricular acupuncture. Amy and I were lucky enough to do a training in NADA, which is a protocolized non-diagnostic ear acupuncture method that was developed especially for patients with substance use disorder back in, what was it, Amy, 1960s, 1970s, 1970s. Michael Smith. Right. Uh, has an interesting 
origin story in the U.S. However, going back centuries and centuries and centuries, acupuncture at large has been used in traditional Asian medicine for all kind for everything. Basically, it's one of the basic fundamentals, fundamental tools of medicine and healing. Um, auricular acupuncture, however, was developed for this particular this particular protocol was developed to help people who were using heroin, and it was found to be effective for withdrawal and cravings and anxiety. And it has kind of grown into a method that's used all around the world for people with substance use, use disorder and people with trauma. I, I had to say I was hesitant to go to the training. I was like, oh man, here we go. It's like a whole weekend. It was three days of training. And I am so glad I did because it's an amazing tool to offer people. There are some good studies to show that auricular acupuncture actually reduces opioid use. There's a fascinating study about cocaine use uh, reduction. And there's some really fascinating study about regarding harm reductions. Auricular acupuncture was offered to people accessing syringe exchange. Those people were had better retention in the program and actually reduced both heroin and alcohol use. Amy, you and I well, you predominantly, but you and I launched, I started it and you continued it with greater force, a small study in a residential treatment program here in Utah, looking at how auricular acupuncture affects three parameters, subjective parameters for clients who were entering a residential treatment program who historically had a high rate of recidivism. And then you, I, I measured this and offered this service when they were entering into the program. So very new, most of them coming from the streets or from jail or prison. And then you continued it on while they were in residential treatment for over six months, right? And we measured on a Likert scale, anxiety, pain, motivation for treatment, irritability, and craving. Was that the fifth one? Yeah. And do you want to yep. tell us? Well, yep. I'll tell yep. you some of my personal experiences with it, but what? tell us a little bit about what you found and what we found in general with those results. Yeah. I, the data, the small amount of data that we collected, we had 71 patients that we used our sort of the final initial evaluation of this data. 71 patients is definitely not the number of patients that were treated. So I want to make that clear because clinically, this was very powerful for a large number of patients. So I treated every week, twice a week, most patients in a residential setting, there were about 80 patients in this particular residential setting. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I would go in for four hours and I placed needles probably somewhere between 40 and 60 patients each time I went in. So this was a significant number of patients who were receiving this treatment. But when we decided to collect the data and review some initial analysis of the, of the Likert scale data, we just picked patients that had had at least two treatments and had filled out surveys two different times. That was the N of 71 that we got. So it sounds like a small number. We ended up treating a lot more than that. But in every area, we had um, positive results. So reduction in cravings, reduction in anxiety, reduction in irritability. Pre-treatment in the irritability group specifically, I thought the, the data was really interesting. The average pre-treatment was 3.35 and the average after treatment 1.54. So over half reduction in irritability 
irritability. And, you know, irritability is so powerful for our patients that are experiencing early withdrawal and early treatment. It's probably the anxiety and the irritability that is going to send them right out the door in addition to cravings. And so there was a, there was a nice reduction in all three areas, cravings, anxiety, and irritability. There was a reduction in pain, also important for our patients, and then a slight increase in motivation. So across the board, positive. We're going to try and review this data a little in the future and hope to publish this. But with this little bit of early data, and certainly anecdotally, this is a really amazing thing to be offering patients in a, in a treatment. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful. I It's been transformative in terms of what I could feel like I can offer people for more reasons than one. First of all, people often come in in crisis. You're seeing them in the clinic in crisis, in the emergency room, in treatment facilities, could be anywhere actually. And there's not much we can do to help people other than to talk to them, to reassure them. Maybe we can medicate them immediately to see if that can give them some relief if they're in, in crisis. But this is a protocol that you can do immediately that has immediate effects for a lot. And it is non-pharmacological. It's very cheap. I think we estimated the, the supply cost is about 10 cents per person, seven to 10 cents per person in terms of the 10 acupuncture needles that are required for each recipient. You won't necessarily hurt anybody other than they're undergoing acupuncture and they may not like needles being placed in their ear and they might experience some mild bleeding. So the the benefit could be very large. I use it all the time. I use it, I'm using it in a new program that I work at now. I do a group every Wednesday and they love it. Everyone runs in and lies down and they're like, please do me first, do me first, because they want to lie down with the needles in their ears for as long as possible. And you and I both have had this experience, Amy, where we've had some really amazing subjective feedback of how this has been helpful. So you can get trained through NADA as long as you hold a license, depending on the state that you live in, depends on what kind of license you have being eligible to do the training in NADA. So, for example, in Utah at the moment, you can only be a licensed acupuncturist or a physician. P PAs, nurse practitioners, LCSWs cannot do this procedure, but there are some states where they can. And actually, Amy, good shout out to Amy, is really working hard to get legislation changed in Utah so that nurse practitioners, PAs, and other medical providers and behavioral health specialists can offer this very easy to apply, a safe procedure to people with substance use when it seems to be very helpful, not only because acupuncture seems to be helpful for a lot of things, and it has data to support that, but also it is a therapeutic encounter that often our patients don't experience in the Western medical system. It's not often that we can do something for them hands-on in the moment. Recommend it. Paula, the effects of this just become more profound every time I have an experience with it. Um, I met a guy today who was referred to me from another provider in my organization, and I read through his chart. Before I even met him, I knew that he was walking in the door with severe cannabis, severe stimulant. He overuses his Adderall, severe ketamine, GHB, and alcohol use disorder. And I knew that I was going to have to have a, a conversation with him about residential treatment. I knew it would be a difficult conversation, but I had I was not prepared for the reaction that he had. He was 
just, it was like he was having a complete out of body experience. He was crying. He was anxious. He was pale. He was sweating. I mean, it was just this very intense reaction to this discussion and discussion about his ambivalence, about his use and all of that. And I was like, listen, do you want some auricular acupuncture? He was like, what? (laughs) I was like, do you want me to put five little, little needles in your ear and set you in a quiet room and just sit with you and have you take some deep breaths and have one of our therapists come in and just spend a few minutes with you. And he was like, I mean, I will basically do anything to feel better right now. And so that's exactly what we did. And an hour later, he walked out of the room. He looked like a completely different person. He was so grateful. He was much more clear headed. He was more thoughtful and he was able to sort of engage in a discussion um, that I wouldn't have been able to have with him if we hadn't done that. And it, it was just like, I didn't know what to do in the moment. I just was like almost paralyzed. And I was like, oh my gosh, I brought my acupuncture needles down. I I have them in my bag. And it was just so amazing to just like pull out those needles and have something that I could do for him that I was pretty sure was going to help him and help build an alliance between us. And that's exactly what it did. It was really powerful. And I was so happy at the moment to have that, those, that box of needles. I love it. That's so awesome. Well, what else? We're nearly out of time, Amy, but is there anything else? I think you wanted to talk about mindfulness. I know that mindfulness-based therapies are now being used. I mean, in a lot of treatment programs, mindfulness is becoming cornerstone coping skill and discipline that people with substance use disorder are learning. But do you want to talk about that? And then we'll wrap things up. Yeah. So, I mean, I think mindfulness, mindfulness-based interventions, mindfulness-based um, stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, um, mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, um, which is developed and had a significant amount of research um, by Dr. Eric Garland, who's in the College of Social Work here at the University of Utah. All of these interventions um, probably have some of the best data um, in the substance use disorder base. So multiple studies looking at alcohol, opioid use disorder, tobacco, amphetamines. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mindfulness helps reduce cravings and helps um, people stop using substances, substances. So a really important piece of of treatment and just trying to get people to engage in even five minutes of a mindfulness activity a day can be really helpful, especially for patients that are experiencing um, acute withdrawal. They're in early phases of recovery. Um, Even just doing some deep breathing or five minutes of sort of dedicated meditation or mindfulness reduces cortisol, um, epinephrine and norepinephrine, and just really helps people feel better right in the moment. And combining a regular acupuncture with a mindfulness-based intervention can be really helpful as well. There's no data on that. That's how I've used the two together. It can be, can be really effective and really like that and appreciate Agree. it. Agree. So. Agree and support. I have I have found the same and I steer more and more people towards mindfulness-based therapies and app. And it's something that you don't necessarily need to have. I mean, maybe you go through MBSR training or the course yourself as a provider, which I think all providers should do. I think it's worthwhile. But even if you don't feel completely well equipped yeah. in, in the work to instruct your, your patients, you can direct them to a trial of the Headspace app 
which is so great. It's great for people who are just getting into mindfulness-based practices. They can do very short meditations. I mean, there's lots of other web-based applications that help people specifically with addiction in terms of mindfulness, breath work, you know, square breathing, etc. I think it's a wonderful tool. Darlene, do you use that or do you recommend that to your patients? I do refer to Headspace and I use that. I mean, not just my addiction patients, but your anxiety patients. A lot of our mental health disorders really mindfulness. It, there's such a place for it now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Amy, thank you. Is there is there anything else that you forgot to say or you wanted to say or any salient points that you want people to take home? You have a lot of years of experience and we're really lucky to have you in the community here in Utah. And then the addiction community is so lucky to have you because you're blending two worlds, which I think is really fantastic. The functional medicine integrative uh, medicine space with addiction medicine. So I'm really grateful for that. But is there anything else you want to want to say? No, I don't think so. I mean, you too, Paula. I mean, I think, I mean, both of us are, I think we are just really like-minded in this desire to see this blending of integrated lifestyle, complementary medicine, and treatment of patients that are suffering um, with this just really challenging and difficult diagnosis. And I've heard you say this a lot, Paula, you know, like how we just need as many tools in our toolkits as we can get, because even with all of our really great evidence-based treatments, buprenorphine and naltrexone and acamprosate and, and CBT and ACT and all of our, all of our evidence-based treatment, we're, we're not really making a dent in things. And with the pandemic and increases in overdoses, we've never seen overdoses as high as, as they were last year. And we've never seen death um, from alcohol-related complications as high as they've been. And it's just kind of like this population deserves access to everything that we can give them. And um, these complementary approaches, while they may not have the power of really large multi-center randomized control trials, um, there is some evidence for everything we've talked about today. And the great thing about the things that we've talked about today is none of them are dangerous and none of them are going to hurt people. And so why not just sort of open up the access of these um, interventions to people that just, I mean, people just need this now more than ever. So I'm really grateful to you first. I mean, we've just, I feel like we've just been comrades in this discussion and this early fight to bring complementary and integrative treatment to this population. So I'm just really glad that we get to work together and I'm really grateful to you guys for having me on again. So thank you so much, Darlene. And thanks, Amy. And thanks to all our listeners. We appreciate your support. Spread the podcast to the learners in your community and your medical institutions. Have a good rest of your day. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
content of the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.